Do you ever look at your life and wonder if God is really working? And why are so many things going wrong? If God is really working, why are so many things going wrong? The first time that I can remember asking that question in like a really serious way was my freshman year of college. I had grown up in Tennessee and I moved to Chicago to go to school. It was about eight hours away from where I grew up and I didn't know a single person in the city of Chicago when I moved there. And so the first month or so, I just was wrestling with being homesick and that was new to me because I'd never been the kid who like went to a friend's house and missed mom or anything. Um, and so I'm there, I'm homesick. And then after I was there for a month, um, I found out that one of my best friends that I had grown up with died in a car accident. And so I was uh, dealing with that. And then shortly after that, uh, one of my grandfathers passed away. Shortly after that, another grandfather passed away. And at the end of the first semester, the friends that I had made decided to leave the school. And so now the few people I had met are gone. And so I'm just left in Chicago going, God, if you're working, then why are there so many things going wrong? And we could go around the room or we could ask you online to share stories like that too, couldn't we? You've got things that have happened that have caused you to ask that question. God, if you're working, why are there so many things going wrong? And maybe you're in a situation like that now. And maybe it's not even big things. Maybe it's smaller things like your tires are flat and the heat's out and the kids are still at home. They're not going anywhere and they're just there. And that's also how the nation of Israel was feeling in the book of Isaiah. They had been told that because of their sin, they were going to be invaded and exiled. They were gonna be defeated by these other nations, particularly the Babylonians. And then it happens. And they're left looking at their capital city of Jerusalem that's just been ransacked all of the wealth that Solomon had accumulated and put in the temple reserve or in the palace reserves have been taken away. The palace has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. The walls have fallen. Many of them are taken away from their homeland into captivity. And they're going, God, if you are working, why are there so many things going wrong? Why are the other nations prospering? They're worshiping false gods. What is going on? God, if you're working, why are there so many things going wrong? And as we saw when we came to Isaiah chapter 40 last week, we saw that God wants to comfort his people as they're wrestling with that. Here was the question. Here was the thing that the Israelites were saying in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. We looked at this last week. They were saying, my way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by my God. God, where are you working? And when we come to Isaiah chapter 42, where we'll be today, God is gonna help us answer this question. How does he work to fix what's wrong? 
How does God work to fix what's wrong? And by looking at this text, I think we'll also learn what that can teach us about how God works in our own lives. So Isaiah chapter 42 is where we'll be today. How does God work to fix what's wrong? The truth is there are a number of ways that God works to fix what's wrong. Uh, theologians uh, refer to this thing called common grace. Common grace is the thing that God is doing at all times for all people to restrain evil and promote good. At all times, God is working in ways to restrain evil and promote good. Um, he's doing that through the conscience that he's given us. Imagine how much worse the world would be if people didn't have a conscience that kind of speaks to them and says, I don't know if you should do this. So he uses the conscience to do this. He also uses the family. One of the purposes of the family in the world is to restrain evil and promote good by instructing kids on how to live. God also uses the government to do this. In many places throughout the Bible, you could kind of piece together the purpose of government is restraining evil, promoting good, promoting justice. That's what the government is supposed to do. This is also what God uses teachers for, doctors for, scientists, medicine, technology. These are all ways that God is restraining evil and promoting what's good. You don't have to be a Christian to invent a cure for cancer or the cure for COVID-19 because of common grace. So in this country, as Christians, when an election rolls around, you should listen to your conscience and vote for the candidate that you feel is going to do that, promote justice and restrain evil. So God is working in a number of ways to restrain evil and promote what's good, but None of those ways, none, none of what theologians call common grace can fully and finally fix what's wrong in the world. And so God is working primarily to fix what's wrong by sending his servant. Look at Isaiah 42, verse 1. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I've put my spirit on him. Listen to this. He will bring justice to the nations. Look at verse three. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. Verse four. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coasts and islands will wait for his instruction. So how is God going to work to fix what's wrong? He's going to send his servant to administer justice. His servant will fully and finally establish justice on the earth. Look at verses six and seven. God says, I am the Lord. I have called you, he's speaking to the servant now, I have called you for a righteous purpose and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you and I will appoint you, listen to this, I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people 
and a light to the nations. When he says that this servant is going to be a covenant for the people, here's what he's saying. He's saying this servant is going to be the one who achieves and guarantees justice on the earth. That's what he means by covenant. The servant will be the one who achieves and guarantees justice on the earth. And he says he's going to be a light to the nations. This is not just for Israel. This is for all the peoples of the earth. By calling this servant a light, he's saying he's going to be the one who leads these people out of the darkness of sin and suffering into the light of justice. He goes on in verse 7. He's going to do this in order to open blind eyes, to help people see the truth and see what's real, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. So the primary way that God is working to fix what's wrong is sending his servant. What is the servant going to do? He's going to bring justice to the earth. He's going to be a covenant and a light to ensure that justice comes to the earth. Now, what are we talking about when we say that he will bring justice? What do we mean? Justice is when wrongs are made right. Justice is when the world becomes like it's supposed to be. If you've ever looked around the world, looked at your life and thought, this isn't right. This isn't the way that it's supposed to be going. It shouldn't be like this. That's a clue to your heart that there is a right and there is a wrong in the world. The fact that you yearn for, that you long for things to be made better, that you long for things to, to improve and to be made right, that's a clue that there is a way the world is supposed to function. As Christians, we believe that the reason that we long for justice is because God made the world and he had a vision for the world. If you're not a Christian and you're listening today, either online or you're in the room, here's just a question I think would be worth you considering. What would be your basis for calling something unjust? Who defines injustice and why them? As Christians, we believe God is the judge and the lawgiver because he's the one who created the world. Look at uh, verse five. This is what God the Lord says who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. He's saying, look, God is the one who made all things and sustains all things. And that's the reason that we long for justice is because God designed the world to work a certain way. And intuitively, you kind of know when things are not going the way they're supposed to. Think about Genesis 1 and 2 for just a minute and God's design for the world in three categories. This will be on the screen. Three categories. 
humans, nature, and culture. What was God's design for humans, for humanity, for men and women? He wanted men and women to be living in a deep friendship with himself and with each other and experiencing joy on the earth. That's his vision for mankind. That we would be in a deep friendship with him and with each other and experiencing joy on the earth. What's God's vision for nature, including the land, sea, animals, His vision for nature is that it would be wisely ruled over by humans who are good stewards. That all of nature would be wisely governed and ruled over by humans who are good stewards of nature. And what's his vision for culture? In Genesis 1, you can read this sometime, 26 and then following, God says, hey, be fruitful and multiply cultivate the earth. And the word cultivate means he intends for them to, to create culture, to build society, to make things function in a certain way. And what was his vision for that culture? He wanted it to be full of prosperity and health and beauty and peace for all as humans work hard on the earth. That's his vision for culture. He wants it to be full of prosperity and peace for everyone as humans work hard on the earth. That's God's vision for the world. That's his vision for humans, nature, and culture. The reason that things are not right, the reason that we can look around at the world and see so many things that are wrong is because as humans who were entrusted with fulfilling God's vision for the earth, rather than follow him and follow his vision, we've rebelled against him. We've tried to be wise in our own eyes, and the result is all kinds of dysfunction. Instead of God's vision for humanity being what he intended, here's what the reality is. Instead of humans living in a deep friendship with God as he designed us, instead, there's all kinds of idolatry throughout the earth. We talked about that last week. There are things that all of us trust and crave in a way that dethrones God. The result of those things is dysfunction. We don't have time to explain all of that today. We've also, God's vision for humanity was that we would live in a deep friendship with one another, that we would have peace with one another. And instead, we do things like lie and murder and commit adultery and rape and theft, and greed, and slander, and gossip. These are all things that destroy the good that God intended. They divide people. They separate us. So rather than experiencing friendship with one another, we experience animosity. Think about nature and the way that nature is broken from God's vision. There's sickness, and disease, and allergies, and mental health issues. There are natural disasters. There are, in many places in the world, are a lack of resources through famine and drought or contaminated resources through air pollution, toxic water supplies, and toxic soil. When you look around at the world, things are not the way that they are supposed to be. Why? Because they're not fulfilling God's vision for the earth. 
And when you look around at culture, it is not peace and prosperity for all. Instead, it's corruption and wars and systemic injustices like global poverty and racism and violence and divorces and absent fathers. The world is not like it's supposed to be because we have rebelled against God and his grand vision for the earth. So what does it look like for the servant then that Isaiah is talking about to come and bring justice? What would it require for a servant to come and bring justice to the earth? To bring justice, it would involve two things, condemning the wrong and caring for the weak. Condemning the wrong and caring for the weak. What do I mean by that? To condemn the wrong, you've got to show up and say, this is not right. And in order to do that, you've got to be a person of integrity yourself who is living according to God's vision for the earth. So you've got to condemn the wrong. You've got to say, this is not right. And then you've got to round up the evildoers and judge them, punish them. That's what, that's what it means to execute justice, right? It's to make people pay for what they've done, to round up the evildoers and condemn the wrong. And it means caring for the weak. In the Old Testament, you can read this in Isaiah chapter one, really throughout Isaiah, the book of Micah, there are many Psalms about this, the book of Job. When God is speaking to the people about justice, many times he's also referring to defending the vulnerable, the needy, and the oppressed. So in the Old Testament, justice looks like caring for widows and orphans, relieving and strengthening the single parent family, feeding the hungry, releasing people who are imprisoned unjustly. Justice is getting people who have done wrong in prison, but it's letting people who are imprisoned because of corruption in the system out of prison. It's working with the sick and the blind. It's loving and helping the burdened. It's protecting the immigrant from being exploited or hurt. This is why the servant in Isaiah 42 is described as bringing justice and also having this humility, this gentleness to him. Look at verses two and three. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. Verse three. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. What does that mean? He will not break a bruised reed. A reed is like a tall, slender piece of grass, just a flimsy piece of grass. And he's saying that this servant, if he sees one of those pieces of grass that's kind of bruised, he's not gonna throw it away. Now think about the gentleness of that. If he sees a wick that's just barely got the orange hue to it, he's not going to put it out. Instead, the way this servant is going to care for the weak 
is he's going to transform what's broken. He's going to take what's broken and he's going to restore it to what God intended. So he's going to condemn the wrong and care for the weak, and that's going to involve restoring things to God's vision. So the result of him doing all this, the result of him bringing justice to the earth and being a covenant to the people and a light to the nations, the result of all this will be restored humanity in a restored nature with a restored culture. God's vision for the world will be accomplished when his servant comes. So who is the servant? Well, let me tell you who the servant is not. The servant is not the United States. The servant is not Donald Trump or Joe Biden. The servant is not Muhammad even though some Muslims claim that from this text. The servant is not the nation of Israel, even though throughout this section of Isaiah, sometimes the word servant does refer to the nation of Israel. This servant, the New Testament writers claimed, is Jesus of Nazareth, the true Israelite, the true human, the one who lives according to God's vision for the world. Think about the way that Jesus fulfills some of the specific things in this chapter. This servant is said to be one that God chooses and delights in, and that he will put his spirit on. At Jesus' baptism, when Jesus is baptized, the spirit descends on him like a dove, and there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, with who I delight in. Jesus is the servant. Think about the humility that Jesus displayed. When you read the gospels, this interesting thing happens. Jesus will do a miracle, he'll heal someone, and then he will say, but hey, don't tell anybody about this. Just go present yourself to the priest, but don't tell anybody. Or somebody will express faith in him and he'll say, hey, but, but don't go and tell anyone. Why is he doing that? Because the servant in verse two will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, listen to Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. Large crowds followed him and he healed them all, verse 16. He warned them not to make him known, verse 17, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then Matthew goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 42. Jesus comes with humility just as the servant was promised he would. Jesus also comes to be a covenant for the people. Look at Luke 22, verse 20. In the same way, this is the night before he dies. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is saying, look, my life is going to be given so that you can know that justice will be achieved and guaranteed because he's going to be the covenant. Jesus also comes to bring light to the nations. John chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again. 
I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Apostle Paul picked up on this theme in Colossians chapter 1 when he said, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He's leading the captives free. Jesus fulfills the descriptions in this text. But also think about what Jesus did on the earth in light of this claim that he's bringing justice to the nations, that he's making things right, that he's restoring God's vision for the earth. He's restoring humanity and nature and culture. Think about what what Jesus did in light of that. He comes and he teaches by condemning what's wrong in his teaching. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, talking about these people, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Sounds like justice, verse 22. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Why does Jesus show up and sound so harsh? Because Jesus came to bring justice to the earth. He came to condemn evil, to condemn what's wrong. And why does he raise the standard so high? Why is it necessary to not just judge murderers, but to also judge people who talk negatively about their neighbor. Why is that necessary? Because Jesus came to restore God's vision for the earth. And what was God's vision for humanity? That we would live in a deep friendship with one another. Can you have a deep friendship when there are people who refer to each other as fools with anger in their heart? No. And that's why It's not enough just to round up the murderers because Jesus has a grand vision. He's restoring things to God's original design. This is why Jesus, think about this. This is why Jesus heals people in his ministry. When he shows up to someone who is lame or blind or deaf and he heals them, what is he doing? He's saying, This is not the way it's supposed to be. If you're in the room today or you're watching online and you have a handicap of some kind, or maybe you have a friend or a loved one who has a significant handicap, Jesus looks at you and he says, this is not how it's supposed to be. And Jesus healed because he had come to condemn what's wrong and care for the weak. Think about the fact that Jesus calmed the storm. Why does he do that? Because what's God's vision for nature? God's vision for nature is that it would be under the stewardship of humanity, that it would be governed by humanity. 
And so when Jesus comes as a human and he speaks to the storm and the storm obeys, what's happening? The sea and the wind is beginning to be under the authority of a human again. God's vision for the earth is coming true. This is why he feeds people because God's intention was that there would be life and prosperity on the earth. This is why he befriends outcasts, because God's vision is that humans would be in a deep friendship, not on the outside. This is why he has compassion on sinners. Why can Jesus go to a party in Luke chapter 7, and there's this woman who's been living in all kinds of horrific sexual immorality, and he can take up for her in front of the religious leaders. Why does he do that? Because Jesus came to bring justice to the earth. That means he wants to restore the world to God's original design. And what was God's original design for humanity? That we would be in a deep friendship with him. And so in order for Jesus to to accomplish justice on the earth. He didn't just come to condemn. If Jesus had come with only the intention to condemn, no one would be left standing. All of us would be rounded up and all of us would be subject to hellfire, as he says in Matthew chapter five. But Jesus is also coming to care for the weak to accomplish justice. And so here's what he does. He comes, he lives the life God intended for humans to live, and then he goes to the cross and he dies. The righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter chapter 3 says. But he does not stay dead. Instead, he is raised from the dead in power. He ascends to be with his father. And he promises someday to return, to finish the work, to make all things right. On that day when he comes, he will be coming just to condemn and rescue his people, to remake the earth. So listen, if you're here this morning, if you're watching online, and you look at the world, you look at your life, and you know this is not the way it's supposed to be. You even look at your own life, and you're like, I can't distinguish between justice out there and justice in here because justice flows through down right in here, and I know that I also am unjust. Listen, you do not have to crucify yourself this morning. There is a servant from the Father who has been crucified for you. If you will come and trust in him, you will be forgiven of your sins. And you will begin to experience his work of justice in your own heart as he begins to transform you and restore you into the image of himself. So come and believe in him this morning. So Jesus is the servant from God who comes to fix what's wrong. 
the Israelites in Isaiah 42 were waiting for the Messiah to come. Now he has come and we, the church, are waiting for him to come again where he will fully establish justice on the earth. So, what can this teach us about how God works in our lives? Many times, God's work in our lives is small, not big. Many times, God's work in our lives is small, not big. See, we think if God's working, we'll see something really big happen. There will be a new job or a new promotion or big success or a miraculous and dramatic coincidence or change of some kind will happen. And man, it'll be so big. We even do this in ministry or when we think about the church sometimes. We think if, if God's working, then hundreds will respond and come forward. If God's really working, then the church is going to grow exponentially. If God's really working, then worship is going to be so moving every single time you come in the door. It'll be big. You'll, you'll see it. You'll feel it. But many times God's work looks small, not big. Remember verse 2? He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. The way God works is to send a servant who doesn't make himself really big and loud. Instead, Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven, the biggest thing you can imagine, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it's fully grown, all the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Many times you won't see what's happening because it's like a seed. It's small, not big. So trust that God is faithful, even when he's not flashy in your life. And you be faithful too. Many times God's work in our lives is slow, not fast. We think if God's working, we'll see something happen now, today. God would answer our prayers right now. He would, we would see change right now. We would see growth right now. Many times God's work is slow, not fast. God made this promise to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 42, and it was 600 years before Jesus came. Jesus said he would return 2,000 years ago. And we're still waiting. This is why in verse 4, it says the coasts and the islands will wait for his instruction because it's slow. Second Peter chapter 3, a really interesting passage you should go read sometime. Peter is responding to this question. Hey, Jesus isn't really going to come because it's been so long. <laughs> and he says, look, with God... A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. So don't mistake what's happening as God delaying on his promise instead. What God is doing is being patient with you because he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So let the same be true for us. Don't discount God's work in your life or in someone else's life 
because it's taking so long. You've been praying for your son or your daughter for a long, long time, and it seems like nothing's happening. Do not mistake that God's not working because you don't see anything happening now because many times God's work is slow, not fast. Here's the last thing. Many times God's work is hard, not easy. If God's working, it's going to be hard, not easy. We think if God's working, then suddenly things will be awesome overnight. (laughs) What if Jesus had thought like that in the garden the night before he went to the cross? Instead, he did what verse 4 says he would do. He did not become weak or discouraged until he established justice on the earth by going to the cross for us. Following Jesus will be hard. You will face trouble. That's not a sign that God's not working. In fact, James chapter 1 says the opposite. He says, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face various trials. Why? Because it's actually a sign that God is working to grow your faith and make you more complete, lacking nothing. God's work is many times small, not big, slow, not fast, and hard, not easy. To close, I want to tell you this story that I heard this week or that I read this week in a commentary that I was reading to prepare for this. Commentaries are just books that are about the Bible. And this particular commentary was written by a professor that I had in undergrad. His name is Dr. Rydelnik. And Dr. Rydelnik grew up in a Jewish family. His parents were actually Holocaust survivors. And when he was a teenager, he came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And so he lived in Brooklyn, and he was surrounded in this big Jewish community. And at his high school, because there were tons of Jewish students there, uh, he started sharing about how Jesus is the Messiah. And he led a few of his friends to Christ. And there were about 15 of them who were at this high school. And they were all part of this club called the Hebrew Club at their high school. And because they were kind of starting to make a stir, the Hebrew club decided that they were going to invite uh, this guest speaker to come in and do a seminar on why Jesus is not the Messiah. And so they invite this uh, man to come in. At the time, he was a grad student at an Ivy League school there in New York, and he worked at the local synagogue, and so he came and he did this presentation. And he was very smooth and sleek and just a great communicator. And he actually, even still today, has a nationally syndicated radio uh, program. And so he starts debunking why Jesus is not the Messiah. And afterwards, uh, there was a Q&A session. And so Dr. Idelnik, as a little 16-year-old, he's cocky. He's had so much success leading all these people to Christ. He's going to go up to the microphone and start, you know, hammer in this guy, and he's going to lead them to Christ. And in his mind, like the whole crowd's going to come to know Jesus today kind of thing. So he goes up and he just starts going through verse after verse after verse in the Hebrew Bible. This points to Jesus, this points to Jesus, this points to Jesus. And the guy just has an answer for every single one of them and just humiliates him in front of his entire student body. Now, if you've ever been in a situation like that, you know like how you replay that in your head over and over and over. And that's what happened to Dr. Idelnik. He was humiliated. He was so embarrassed. He felt like such a failure. 
And so that event is actually what led him to decide that he was going to go to Bible college and then seminary and then eventually become a professor is he wanted to be prepared for moments like that. But for 30 years, he carried that around and felt like a failure. That was just a moment that he would recall with just embarrassment. 33 years later, he was speaking at this event in Southern California and a man came up and started talking to him. He could tell that he had a Brooklyn accent. And so he asked him, you know, how'd you get the Brooklyn accent? And he said, I, you know, I earned it. I'm from Brooklyn. And so they connected over that. And Dr. Idelnik asked the man, how did you become a follower of Jesus? The man said, well, I was a teacher at this high school in Brooklyn. And the Hebrew club invited this man to come and talk about why Jesus was not the Messiah. And I was interested in that because I was a faithful Jew. And so I listened to that presentation. And afterwards, there was this high school kid who just made a fool of himself in front of the whole school, but he just kept hammering away verse after verse from the Hebrew Bible. And the guy had an answer for all of it. He was way better of a communicator than that guy. But afterwards, I got to thinking about that and I decided to start reading the Hebrew Bible, looking to see if Jesus was the Messiah. And after a year of reading, I came to the conclusion that he was and I gave my life to Christ and I've been part of Messianic congregations ever since then. Now for 33 years, Dr. Idelnik thought that nothing was happening. If God was gonna work, it meant that the whole school was gonna have revival and he was gonna see hundreds of people come to faith. That didn't happen. If God was gonna work, it was gonna happen now because it's fast. If God's gonna work, it's gonna be easy. And I'm gonna be popular and I'm gonna... And instead, what he learned is that God was working. But it was not big, it was small. It was not fast, it was slow, and it was not easy, it was hard. But God is working to make things right on the earth, and that means he's working for you too. So I don't know who you've been praying for, that it seems like hope is lost. I don't know what you've been praying for yourself. It feels like nothing's happening. But listen, God is committed to making things right on the earth. He sent his servant to accomplish that. Would you come and would you trust in him? Let me pray for you and ask the Holy Spirit to help us with this because he's the helper. Father, thank you so much for sending your servant, Jesus. God, if there are people listening today, either here in the room or online, who do not know you, I ask that you would introduce yourself now. God, if there are people who are struggling to see how you're at work, Would you give them endurance and patience? Would you strengthen them? Would you not let them grow weary or weak, but would you lift them up and let them soar on wings like eagles? Let them walk and not grow weary. Let them run and not faint. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.